you please remain standing as I read these words from Romans chapter 12. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing, and it is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, we're going to begin today uh, a five-week series called Swipe Up, and I'll, I'll get to that here in a moment, but we're going to be taking a look at what does it mean to live faithfully in a fallen world. And Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are going to be our anchor text uh, for these next several weeks as we take a look at some various things like, uh, first of all, just how do we live faithfully? Uh, how do we live in harmony with people who believe and think differently than us? Uh, how do we Live faithfully in a world that is so confused about sex and sexuality and gender. Um, what does God think about how I should handle my money? If you guys, I'm not going to tell you which week that is because you'll skip it on purpose, okay? But we're, we're going to be taking a look at a host of different topics and asking the question, uh, what honors God? How do we live a life that's transformed? How do we live a life in, in a way that even if the world around us is fallen, we can be faithful people? So this morning, we're just going to sort of set the stage for the rest of the series as we talk about what does it mean to live faithfully in a fallen world. I want to remind you as well, if you're a note taker, in our Church Center app, there's a little uh, page called Sermon Notes, and that might help you outline your time uh, in God's Word this morning. Uh, in the year 2015, uh, correlated with the skyrocketing ascension of a little app called Instagram, a new term became commonplace in our vocabulary. A new title, a new career to aspire to. The word influencer became a part of our everyday vocabulary. Companies who were recognizing that fewer and fewer people were turning into TV ads now looked online to see how they might push their products, sponsoring videos and branded posts and sending merchandise out to all sorts of folks who had a presence on the internet. Anyone who commanded the attention of the masses online was now prime real estate for any brand looking to boost their sales. And how convenient to capture the attention of someone and to immediately place a link to go purchase or access the content that any brand wanted you to have. No doubt you've seen a post from an influencer, most likely. If you have no idea what I'm talking about at this point, find a teenager, they'll explain it to you. But you've probably come across an influencer on the internet. Influencers are now littered throughout the entire gamut of the social media scene. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, whatever. If all of that was a foreign language to you, again, find a teenager, they'll explain it to you. But even a large portion of our current generation uh, young, of young people, Generation Z, now say that they aspire to become an influencer or to make YouTube videos as their chosen career path. Influencers carry a lot of weight in the digital world because they generally, they have some celebrity about them. They're charismatic and humorous, intelligent, they're good looking and successful. They present the best of their lives 24-7. 
And so others flock to their content to try to emulate their standards and their styles. If an influencer has a, a certain pair of shoes, you now want that certain pair of shoes. If they drive a certain type of car, you now want to drive that certain type of car. If they buy a certain brand of makeup or clothing or even groceries, influencers in the digital space have sway over the decisions that their followers make. One of the unique abilities of influencers is to use their platforms a little bit differently than the average person or user of one of these platforms. I'd venture to say that many of us have seen an ad from an influencer imploring you to swipe up. Swipe up now to access my content. Swipe up now to go buy these shoes that I'm wearing. Swipe up and you can have what I have. It's something unique to influencers. On most platforms, you have to have 10,000 followers before you can use a link like that. But these influencers can do this because of the special position that they hold and because the algorithm says that they can. I believe looking at the world through the lens of faith is as difficult as ever. We need to look carefully and critically at the lives of those who leverage their influence to lead others into a robust and real faith. And so this morning, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. If you have your Bible or a mobile device or you're using the sermon notes, you can find it there. It'll also be on the screens. We'll be in Daniel chapter 1 this morning, and I just want to read a few verses. We won't read the whole chapter, but we'll read a few verses, and we'll talk about it a little bit. Here's how Daniel chapter 1 begins. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylon and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Right from the beginning, we learn that Israel is headed into exile. This was anticipated because Israel had flirted with unfaithfulness for quite some time. And in fact, God announced that this would take place. God would send them to a foreign place to help them see his faithfulness again. King Nebuchadnezzar besieges the city. And verse 2 tells us something very important. Here's what it says. And the Lord gave. The Lord gave King Jehoiakim into the hands of this foreign king Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. This wasn't some part of the plan God didn't anticipate. This was, in fact, God's plan. Nebuchadnezzar even a pagan king, was at the behest of God himself. God was using him to accomplish his will in the world. And the prophet Isaiah foretold these very things that would happen. In Isaiah chapter 39, verses 6 and 7, here's what it says. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you who you will father shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Friends, our, our first reminder about living faithfully in a fallen world is to remember that any person of power is set there by God himself. We shouldn't be in mourning. We shouldn't be in dire straits when someone who we didn't vote for or hope for fulfills an office that we want them to. Listen to what God says through the prophet Daniel in chapter 2. Blessed be the name of the God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. 
He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Our God is not knocked back on his heels when power changes hands. No, he is the one handing it out in the first place. And we may feel the world around us changing, but God is the one moving behind the scenes, making those changes for his glory and for our good. Let's now look at verses 3 and 4. Here's what the text says. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and the other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, good-looking young men, he said, and make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, that they're gifted with knowledge and good judgment and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Strong, intelligent, good-looking. In other words, influencers. Those with great stature, good appearance, wise, intelligent, competent, capable, these were men of influence. These are people who would hold sway over the rest of Jerusalem. And Nebuchadnezzar had an agenda. He wanted to engulf the cultures of those he conquered and graft them into the Babylonian way. So there are few who would be more qualified to encourage us to swipe up on their lives and to take a look at what it means to live faithfully than these four characters we find in the first chapter. Their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might recognize the last three by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Let me continue laying out the rest of the scene uh, from the text this morning, and then I want to draw three conclusions as we think well about what it means to live faithfully. In verse 5, it says this, The king assigned them, being all those who were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon, the king assigned them daily rations of food and wine from his own kitchens. This would have been the finest food and drink available, not just in the kingdom of Babylon, but in all the known world. The best meats and breads and cheeses would be second to none. These captives were quickly being converted to the Babylonian way based on their plush treatment. Anything they desired, they could have. Life was brimming with pleasure and promotion was offered to all those who sought it. Here's how the text continues, though. In verse 8 says this, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. More on that here in a little bit. But Daniel then brings his conundrum to the attention of this chief of staff, Ashpenaz. There was great cause for concern on his behalf because the well-being of all those who were under his care was on his head. It was his duty to ensure that not only were they assimilating well into the culture, but that they were well taken care of, that they presented themselves in the best light. And a lesser diet certainly would have taken its toll on these young men. But Daniel is able to propose a compromise. In verse 12 he says this, Please test us for ten days on a diet of vegetables and water. So the attendant agrees trusting that a total, a total deterioration wouldn't happen in just 10 days. And Daniel and his friends commit to living according to God's law rather than indulging in all that was available to them in Babylon. Now, Jerusalem and Babylon are two very different places. 
And one of these may sound more familiar to us today than the other. Here's the contrast between Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem is mono-religious, serving one God. Babylon is pluralistic, serving many. Jerusalem has a slower pace. The Babylon is accelerated and frenetic. Jerusalem is homogenous. Most people looking, thinking, acting, believing the same way. But Babylon is diverse. Many kingdoms conquered, all funneling into one culture. Jerusalem operates out of central support, but Babylon is open source. Jerusalem is sweet and simple. Babylon is complex and bittersweet. The idols of Jerusalem are religious pride and false piety. But in Babylon, it's fitting in and not missing out. Friends, we live in Babylon. What maybe used to resemble Jerusalem is now gone. Our world is increasingly diverse, and our culture celebrates the individual and scoffs at the institution. We don't live in Jerusalem, and we likely never will again. So we would do well to swipe up on the lives of these young Jewish men who predate us by over 2,500 years and bear witness to their faithfulness and the fallen landscape of their world. I told you I wanted to draw three observations out of this story from Daniel and his friends. And the first is this. If we're to live faithfully in a fallen world, we need to cling to conviction. If we are to live faithfully in a fallen world, we are to cling to conviction. What is a conviction? How do we decipher what deserves to be lived out as opposed to what has just been made popular within a certain tradition? Now certainly there are varying degrees of conviction, certain things that we hold at different points within our value system. But when it comes to standing up like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, what is it that I would risk my life to live out? What kind of convictions do I really carry? Convictions are where faith becomes real rather than just rehearsed. Convictions create for us a framework for faith that's genuine and organic and robust and can hold the weight of the sweeping currents of our culture. They have to be more than behaviors we're willing to modify. Certainly you've heard this phrase before and maybe you can finish it. Don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Now the teenagers in the room are like, what is that, right? But the unfortunate reality is that Christians, as Christians, our convictions are often reduced down to some silly phrases that speak nothing of the life-changing power that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it puts off a foul odor about our intentions in the world, in a world that keeps anything orthodox at arm's length. But certainly there's more. Now, Many of us would agree there's some wisdom in that statement. Solomon tells us in Proverbs, walk with the wise and become wise, keep company with fools and suffer harm. Certainly there's wisdom in it, but convictions, ones we are ready to risk our lives to live out, must have more meat than that. You realize in some countries in our world today, people are being executed for not renouncing their faith. And at the moment in which their lives are threatened, gun to their head, knife on their neck, do you think in that moment they're being asked, swear you'll go on a date with a girl who smokes and drinks? No. My fear is that we've made a grave mistake of conflating conviction with consensus. 
What do I mean? Bear with me. Walk with me. We're going to jump into some math here for a second. Because I think there's a formula that we follow when it comes to our ideals, and it goes something like this. My friends slash communities slash influences who call themselves Christians believe X about Y. You tracking so far? Therefore, because I call myself a Christian, I will think, say, believe X about Y. I fear that we arrive at our deepest convictions and ideals based on the consensus of those around us rather than actually digging into and clinging to God's word as the source of truth. Convictions must be born in transformation, not just arrived at through information. Because you won't defend with your life what hasn't changed your life. See, I think if we dig deep into what really matters, we'll find the beautiful simplicity of our belief. It's what we've longed for. It's what we desire to cling to. Because much of what we've clung to, Paul would describe as meaningless chatter as he rebukes the church in Ephesus. See, this is a conviction that I hold dear. I believe that there's one God who created the world, and therefore he has the unique and righteous ability to instruct his creation on anything and everything pertaining to the life in the world he has made. I'll die believing that. I believe this God, though deeply pained and troubled by the sin of humanity, in gracious love, ransomed us back to him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. I'll die believing that. I believe God, full of love, invites us to life beyond our greatest imagination, and that life is best lived in full submission to the Lordship of Jesus. I'll die believing that. See, I'm not sure that all of what we've hung our hats on as believers holds up. And Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah live out their convictions. Their conviction was not, I must eat these things, otherwise God won't be pleased with me. No, and we must not reduce it to such. Their conviction extended well beyond that. Daniel's conviction was this, I believe God's authority is greater than anything else. And I will live in accordance with his instruction, even if it means not submitting to an earthly authority. See, convictions, when they're birthed out of a robust theology, Construct a framework capable of handling the weight of Colster's constant questioning of our faith. For Daniel and his friends to eat the food from the king would mean they would have consumed food that would have been deemed unclean according to their religious practice and standards. And therefore, they could not have fellowship with God. At the root of their resistance was not stubborn religious piety. It was a deep desire to commune with the God of the universe. They believed that life without God was no life worth living. So sacrificing the privilege of being in God's presence to save their own skin did not seem worthwhile. Their desire for God's approval more than any earthly authority is paramount in their ability to live faithfully in Babylon. But notice that their faith extends beyond that. Daniel has such confidence in his God that he is willing to put it to the test. He says to the steward, let me prove to you that my God is who he says he is. God is the one who grants him favor. But notice Daniel's gracious and understanding approach to the official that he approaches. This test for 10 days would not have affected them to the point that the steward would have lost his own head. 
Daniel and his friends take a stand for what they know is true while also being gracious to the steward of Babylon. Now, I've never met a happy vegan. Maybe you have. Nor one that looks more physically imposing than someone who's on a well-balanced diet filled with animal proteins. And this alone is evidence that God's blessing was on Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But look at what the text tells us. Verses 15 and 16 of chapter 1. At the end of the ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the stewards took their food and the wine they were to drink and they gave them vegetables. See, Daniel and his friends demonstrate the tact required when standing for truth. They aren't brash or offensive. They're humble and gracious. Not mandating morality for others, but modeling it in compelling fashion. These young Jewish men living in Babylon are simply living out their faith when everyone else expects them to conform to the norms of this new culture. And the steward is so impressed with their fitness and appearance that he takes away the choice food from everyone else who was gathered in service to the king. I can't imagine they won over many friends when prime rib was replaced with kale and cucumber. That's a deep conviction. And conviction must be found in transformation, not arrived at through information. Back to our core verse for this series, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. First observation is cling to conviction, and my second is this, don't trade the truth. All of us are exiles in Babylon. Don't make the mistake of assuming the world around you is Jerusalem, because the allure of Babylon looks different for all of us. Culture has a current, and this is a picture of a place called the Strid in Bolton Abbey in Yorkshire. My brother Daniel actually showed me this this week. I'd never heard of it. But as we were having this conversation about the sweeping current of culture and sometimes how it goes unnoticed, he drew my attention to this place, and this is actually widely considered to be one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest stretch of water in the world. Now, you could go look up videos, you could uh, watch the water move, you could go walk up right to the banks and you, you could think, I don't see what the big deal is. It looks like the creek out in my backyard. But here's what people would tell you, people who know what they're talking about, that this is actually a rushing river, and we're looking at it as though it were a cross-section. Think about a river flipped on its side, and we're looking right through the middle. See, those aren't banks, they're just overhanging rocks, and this stretch of water is actually extremely wide and carries with it a very strong sweeping current. The rumor, the legend, is that no one who's entered those waters has ever come out. Kids who thought they would go for a little dip or swim were never seen again. People have lost their lives trying to explore it. It is a very dangerous stretch of water. It looks innocent at the top, but there's actually this strong undercurrent in tow that pulls you deeper and deeper and deeper into the water, and you cannot get out. 
Culture has a current. And it might seem innocent and simple to dabble in the water, but there is a sweeping undertow. And if we're not careful, we'll trade the truth of God's word for the affirmation of culture. For some of us, based on who is in our ear, we need to be ready to cling to our convictions by saying, I believe God has made each of us intentionally and beautifully and in the distinct roles of man and woman. And those roles express God's image purposefully. We shouldn't seek to destroy what God deems as good. Amen? For others of us, based on who is in our corner, we need to be ready by saying all people are made in the image of God. The way we treat refugees and minorities is a direct expression of our relationship with Jesus. And it matters that we speak well and act on behalf of the oppressed and marginalized in our society. Amen? Generally, these statements are on opposite ends of the political spectrum. But don't rush to politics. Fight the urge to instantly side with one and reject the other. You're probably experiencing some tension resonating with one of those statements and having a hard time accepting completely the other one. But friends, that's good. Fend off the impulse to have drawn a line and chosen your side because here is what we need to realize. If we're to be faithful in Babylon, we must decipher what is worth risking our lives to live out. Culture's current sweeps quickly and we must guard against anything that would seek to make a God out of convenience, comfort, or confirmation. Truth does not belong to one side. Truth is its own side. And his name is Jesus. We will all be tempted to trade the truth for what leads to acceptance among our peers, applause from popular voices, or accolades within our own tribe. But seeking the approval of man is exactly what Daniel and his friends teach us to avoid. Living faithfully in a fallen world means we don't trade the truth of God's instruction for the convenience of culture's affirmation. And it would have been so easy for Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah to blend in and cause no disruption. They could have resigned themselves to any number of ideas like, God must not care about us since we're in captivity. God certainly can't expect us to continue being faithful when our own lives are at risk. We're in Babylon now. God will give us a pass. Certainly he understands the kind of pressure we are under. In their book, Good Faith, authors David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons outline what it is that makes Christianity countercultural in our day and age. They say this, religious pluralism makes it difficult to have a shared basis for morality because the United States is likely the most religiously diverse place on the planet. They go on to explain that for thousands of years, cultures have existed with specific frameworks. Religions were innate to, the, to your existence within any given culture. And the shared values and assumptions about the world create what they call a strong center. A place from which laws could be made and decisions about difficult matters could begin. This existed in the United States even as recently as a few decades ago. And certainly, the founders of our great country were informed by the tenets of the Christian faith, even if not all of them were devout believers themselves. For a long time, our morality has been a shared center and it's been common sense and commonplace. Justification for moral decisions was not required. 
But his kinemen and lions express were now encouraged to pledge allegiance to a new moral code. And it goes like this. Number one, to find yourself, look within yourself. Number two, people should not criticize someone else's life choices. Number three, to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things that you desire most. Number four, enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. And number five, people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. Finally, number six, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is fine. This is the new moral order we're encouraged to pledge our allegiance to. Dallas Willard says this, the worldview answers people now live by are provided by feelings. Desire, not reality, and not what is good, rules our world. This results in what Kinnaman and Lyons call a grafting of culture's dogma onto Christian theology. And they would now tell us that most of what Americans do within their religion is now based on their own feelings. So before we quickly rush to judge the rest of the world, let us examine our own hearts. Am I simply living out my faith based on my own impulses, based on what I feel is good for me, rather than, again, clinging to the truth of God's Word? We have no center anymore because everyone acts as their own center. This isn't just a fringe issue. It's now mainstream, even within the church. Friends, faithfulness requires that we reject this new moral code based on a me-focused morality and instead go to Scripture to inform and instruct. God's moral order is in stark contrast to cultures. Here's God's moral order. Number one, to find yourself, discover the truth outside yourself in Jesus. Number two, loving others does not always mean staying silent. Number three, joy is not found in pursuing our own desires but in giving of ourselves to bless others. Number four, the highest goal of life is giving glory to God. Number five, God gives people the freedom to believe whatever they want, but those beliefs always affect society. And number six, God designed boundaries for sex and sexuality in order for humans to flourish. The Westminster Catechism was written in the 17th century, and still widely considered to be the single most informative work on the tenets of our evangelical Christian faith. It is used to instruct on the core doctrines of what Christians believe. It is written in a question and answer form, and it begins this way. Here's the first question and answer. What is the chief ambition of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. What is the chief ambition of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We've neglected this simple truth, but it's one that Daniel and Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah believed. It is clearly expressed in Isaiah, their predecessor, by only a few generations. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, here's what the prophet says, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. See, the most important question we can ask as we try to live faithfully in a fallen world is, what honors God? If you're wrestling with a deep and significant issue, if you have a question that's been weighing on you, the question you should ask is, what will honor God? Not what makes me feel good, not what gets me pats on the back from people in my corner, 
But what is it that honors God? See, there will always be a temptation to trade the truth for our own pleasure, promotion, convenience, comfort, or acclaim. Our culture is inundated with the idea that we have no need for God. Therefore, there is nothing to center on. But just like these brave young men, we must make it our chief ambition to bring God glory and display that there is one who is worth centering our very existence upon. If we want to live faithfully in a fallen world, we need to cling to conviction. We must not trade the truth. And finally, we need to learn to trust the tension. It seems the world is spinning faster and faster. Lines that used to be clearly drawn now seem blurred. And and where there was black and white, now it all feels gray. Anybody with me? How do we maintain Christian convictions while still being contributing citizens? How do we balance our grace for the world with the truth of the gospel? The key is in the question. Most of us run from tension. But we need to learn to trust the tension. When we feel pulled in two directions, that's because the Spirit of God is leading us to love while also anchoring us to truth. Living with Christian conviction means that we are known for our compassion and mercy and grace and humility, but that we're also uncompromising, upright, mature, and consistent, and we don't bend the boundary to meet the cultural moment. As Paul says, even if every man is a liar, God is true. Friends, as we live in a place that looks a lot like Babylon, we need to be persons of peace. Daniel and his friends did not look to demonstrate through disruption, but they demonstrated through their own devotion. They were not eager to be offensive, but rather made every effort to be faithful to the way in which God instructed them to live. They didn't make signs and stand on a Babylon street corner and mandate that everyone stop eating the king's food or else they would all go to hell. No, instead they humbly and peaceably said to the steward, test us, just us, and see if my God isn't faithful. We're the guinea pigs. We won't cause a fuss. Our posture matters as we seek to display a God who is worth centering our lives upon. And as we learn to trust the tension, it is wise of us to hear the instruction from the Lord that came from the prophet Jeremiah at the very time that Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah were in Babylon. Here was the Lord's instruction to them in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. The God of Israel says to all the captives he exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. And work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it. For its welfare will determine your welfare. Friends, we might be tempted to completely withdraw from a culture that is averse to our faith or to adopt its tenets wholesale as a means of fitting in. But we must learn to trust the tension, because neither of those are the option. We're called to be salt and light. We're called to demonstrate grace and truth. We're called to live as resident aliens in this foreign world. Why? Because our chief ambition is to display the glory of God and enjoy Him forever. 
We are called to contribute without conforming. Living gospel-transformed lives that bear witness to the God of heaven who is worth all of our energy and attention and our very existence. So if we're to live faithfully in a fallen world, we must trust the tension of our own Christian convictions clashing with culture. We must trust the tension of the resistance that we'll feel to trade the truth of God as the center rather than ourselves. We must trust the tension of living out grace-filled, gospel-centered lives while standing firmly on the truth of God's Word. And we must trust the tension of living for the good of the city in which God has planted us while holding on to the hope of heaven as our forever home. If we want to live faithfully in a fallen world, we've got to cling to our convictions. We cannot trade the truth. We've got to learn to trust the tension as people full of grace and full of truth. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for heroic examples of what it means to live a life in faith. Thank you that we're not in an unfamiliar space and time. God, you've walked with your people over and over and over again through exile, through various cultures, through power shifting and changing hands. God, there's nothing about our world that surprises you. There's nothing about what is happening in our world today that you aren't fully prepared to handle. And God, I pray this morning that we would in fact see that you are moving behind the scenes of it all. God, you are the one who sets up kings and brings down others. You are the one who operates and the world is at your beck and call. So God, would you help us this morning to think carefully, to think critically about the lives that we're living out? Would you help us to wrestle with our own convictions about what it means to be a Christian? And would we only find those truths in your word? Would you help us to avoid the temptation of trading what we know to be true in Scripture for the affirmation of those in our corner? Would you help us to trust the tension Trust the tension of living in a world that's fallen while also being light. Of living lives full of love and ready to extend grace while also never compromising on what is true. God, I believe your spirit can empower us to do those things. And I ask that you would. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.